Ah, yes, and as I was saying, in my land, in my part of Fantasia, there was a great, big, beautiful lake. And then, suddenly, it was gone. What? Did the lake, like, dry up or something? No, there wasn't even a dried-up lake. There was nothing. It was just gone. Was it like a big hole? No, a hole would be something, but it was nothing. Oh, you mean like, like a pit? No, I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> it wasn't anything. It was nothing. So it was empty. What the fuck? <laughs> no, it didn't have anything in it. It was, it was not, no, it wasn't empty. It was gone. It was nothing. So it was like the lake basin. <laughs> Why are you doing this? No. <laughs> no, it was just nothing. Stop guessing. Is it like an absence? No, it was more than, well, no, it, it was less than that. <laughs> No. Oh, so like an emptiness. <laughs> no! <laughs> Why are you doing this? Why are you guessing still? It's nothing. <laughs> it's the only answer. Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my never-ending co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a sleepy bat that's freakishly large, larger than a typical human male. That's whatever, a big bat. Whatever humans are. You make a good point. <laughs> Luckily for all of you, I'm a vegetarian. Oh, thank Christ. Oh, yes. I have to eat a lot of fruit. <laughs> Not like those Batman in Beastmaster? Beast, yes, who ate people. Yes. <laughs> they just Soylent <laughs> Bat is people or something. And uh, I'm a bog boy. My name is Jack <laughs> the Bog Boy. I squat in mud and scream. Does that pay well? Oh, uh, it doesn't pay. Oh, <laughs> rough. At, at least I'm my own boss. Oh, that's nice. Is it entertaining? Ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just out there wailing in the swamps. Yeah, I like doing it when, like, there are some travelers passing by. They think it's an omen or something. It's not. I'm just, I'm just squealing. Just screaming. Just a lot of screams. Just a lot of horking. <laughs> Do you ever find that you have a problem with dry mouth? Uh, I just put mud in there. That makes sense. Just, so you're a mud eater too. Yeah, and I, is that I, like a I, rock biter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a I'm a mud I'm a mud slider. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, this week we've got a real treat in store for everybody because we're going to be talking about the never-ending story. This is a 1984 film directed by Wolfgang Peterson and starring Noah Hathaway, Barrett Oliver, 
Skeletor himself, Alan Oppenheimer, and introducing and possibly ending the career of Tammy Stronach. We have a lot to say about this movie, but why don't we get a quick summary to catch the audience up, just in case they haven't seen the never-ending story in a bit. All right, here we go. Okay, so this is a movie about the struggles between the forces of light and dark and the quest to save the collective unconscious and the human imagination from total oblivion. Holy shit. We have the framing device that the main character, Bastion, is reading a story, but it's not one of those safe stories. No, no, this is a dangerous story. It's one of them not safe for work stories. It That's never right. ends. <laughs> that is dangerous. Yeah. This story smokes cigarettes and wears a cool leather jacket. This story knows that you're reading it. <laughs> Holy shit. It's it's like Twitter, but less terrifying. And there is a an epic quest that the characters of the story go on, and the main character, Bastion, kind of comes along for the ride and ends up being an integral part of the story. Now, couldn't it be argued that any time we're reading a story, we're along for the ride and an integral part of it? That's kind of what this movie calls out. Ah, oh, very good. Uh, but then you get to go back to being yourself again. Ooh, I don't want that. Well, those are the broad strokes of the movie, and we're going to get into the details in the delve. But before we get there, we should probably tell people what who some of the important characters are. That's so right. Hit the music. mentioned Bastion. We've got his father, a practical shithead, who, who tells his kid, who tells his what? Probably emotionally traumatized 10-year-old son to uh, get his feet on the ground and get his head out of the clouds. Yeah, and I should mention that we identified that all of the characters represent an ideology or a human emotion of some type. Yes, the father represents lameness and boring bullshit. Capitalism. Same difference. Tomato, tomato. The jaded death of all that is human. I was basically expecting the dad to like slip up and be like, aren't you supposed to be at work today? To his 10-year-old son. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then Bastion, the main character, the perspective character, I should say. Uh, I felt like he symbolized curiosity and creativity. Yep. And reading. Yeah. The emotion of reading. I kind of feel like that's bundled up in what I said. Yeah, I'll buy it. I'll then, read it. Then there's Atreyu. And his noble and undying steed, Artax. Okay, but one character at a time here, Jamie. <laughs> you're, you're fucking up the whole system. One of those adjectives wasn't correct. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new here, everybody. Um, so, uh, Atreyu is the brave warrior in Fantasia, the world in the, the book Bastion's reading, that go is tasked by the Empress to go on the quest to save their world. Oh, the Empress, you say? Well, we'll get to her in a second. So a Atreyu, what does he represent? 
bravery and the undying will to not let your world be absorbed into nothingness. Perseverance, yes. We all know the undying will to not have your world turn into nothingness. That's a common human emotion that we all experience every day. As one of the forces of light, he also represents hope. And you mentioned his horse, Artax. Who represents immortal life. Innocence. Lost, unfortunately. (laughs) Oh, darn. (laughs) Hey, you guys remember in Shadow of the Colossus when the horse aggro falls and you think that the horse died and that they never ending storied you but actually the horse comes back every time i watch the never ending story i hope that that's going to happen at some point and it does the horse does come back because our text comes back in the end yay you see i sink into the bog all day every day we call that a job hey the bog of eternal despair sounds like mondays am i right so the empress we mentioned the childlike empress yes she she's childlike because she's a child (laughs) oh fun fun fact she is the ruler of fantasia but also i didn't vote for her (laughs) she's almost like the most trusted individual of the entire landscape and she actually does seem to be a benevolent ruler she has everybody's interests at heart she's like a magical force on her own, the way people seem to think about her. And to me, because she, her physical health is linked to Fantasia's existence and how like healthy the land is, I think that she herself represents nothing less than the ima- human imagination and creative life force. Let's see. There's, well, there's Falcor. He yeah. represents being a fucking dragon. Yeah. Just kidding. Falcor's a luck dragon. He's kind of got his whole thing uh, written all over. He shows up exactly when you need him. Just like a lucky penny. Now, guys, how lucky is it to find a penny these days, honestly, though? Like, back in the day, like, finding a penny would be like, oh, I can buy, like, a thousand pieces of candy with this. But nowadays, it's like, who cares? Penny, stupid. <laughs> the burden of a penny. I wouldn't even pick it up. Exactly. Uh, I'd pick it up. It gives you the luck. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Falcor I think represents luck and a little bit of knowledge. He knows stuff that um, Atreyu needs, like where to go. I think he also represents hope, joy, resilience, and blind faith. You gotta be lucky. If you're gonna be dumb, you gotta be lucky. He's kind of like Domino. He he just, things always work out for him, and that's the way he communicates to others. Oh, it'll work out just fine. Just a little subtle luck manipulation? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I said that he represents knowledge a little bit, but I think the more important knowledge character is Angiwook, played by Swords and Satire favorite... Sidney Bromley from oh, the Dragon Slayer. So good. Uh, so he's the inventor alchemist who uh, is mostly interested in knowledge that will be of interest to the scientific community. Yes. He's- so me, me, basically, Angie Wook is my favorite character. 
I, I love the part when um, Atreyu asks him if he's been to the Southern Oracle, and he's just like, Engiwook is like, well, what do you think? I work scientifically? <laughs> you fucking, what, how dare you, you little, no, I haven't been there. <laughs> Um, and, uh, Angiwok's wife, Urgul, uh, is a person who has access to another type of knowledge. She's a healer. Mm-hmm. I think she represents good health and practicality. Yes, definitely. Because she thinks that, uh, Atreyu should be more careful, shouldn't be gallivanting off on quests, should tend to his wounds and be safe. Yeah. But Atreyu, nah, ain't having that. Mm-hmm. He's got a world to save, I guess. Yeah, a world to save. A universe, even. So those are our main forces of light. But we have some forces of darkness, too. There's the nothing, which represents nothing. <laughs> Dang. Honestly, I was kind of trying to figure it out. But I think we should leave the nothing for last because I think understanding the other forces of darkness in the movie actually helps us understand what the nothing is. Not just the force of darkness, though. I think there are other characters who are not necessarily aligned with darkness who represent for this film negative emotions or states of being that are, you know, not conducive to one's personal health or happiness, such as... Morla, the giant turtle, who is basically just like a living embodiment of severe depression. And sadness. And yeah, I mean, she just literally does not care about anything. If you think of any zero fucks given meme, this is Morla. And she expresses her depression through apathy. And um, she she lives in the swamps of eternal sadness. (laughs) She's just too big to be completely submerged, and that's why she's still there, I assume. She's taller oh. than a horse, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Dude, I, there's just the line where Atreyu says to her, if you don't tell me, you'll die too. And she's like, death? Now that would be something. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, oh, oh, geez. That's the only thing she's shown excitement towards. And, you know, framing it this way, just having talked about Urgul and Angiwook, our forces of light who are knowledgeable, Morla is a being of knowledge as well. Yeah, she but, just doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> she's an oracle. Yeah, she has vast amounts of knowledge from living so long and having that time to grow knowledge into wisdom. But she's gotten to the point where she's given up because she thinks nothing matters and that has sent her into this deep depression now she is in a sick part of the land maybe it's infected her but we don't know that but yeah so she represents sadness depression and apathy relatable and then one of the other more active agents of darkness in the movie is the gamork one of the probably uh, most pants-shittingly terrifying creatures of children's media from the 80s. Yep. He scared the hell out of me. I can see why. He's a giant fucking wolf he's who wants to murder you. He's basically a dire wolf. Yep. He's a creature of pure anger and hatred. Yeah, exactly. And he works for the nothing, which is weird if you think about it. 
I, like, does the nothing contract them? Do they have like a 401k thing going on? Like, so what's can, their relationship? Let's talk about their relationship in a second. But I also think besides hatred and anger, that was perfect. I think he also represents fear. Yes, absolutely. Because when somebody is afraid, that can make them turn to anger. And that leads to hatred. And that and, leads to the dark side. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Somebody uh, yeah. finally has the bravery to say it. But he's a violent being and fear and anger can drive you to violence. Um, and then we have the nothing. Oh, sweet, sweet, empty bliss. Exactly. Now that is something. So, Gamork. The. The Gamork. The dire wolf. Gamork. But you can call me the. He describes the nothing as human despair and sadness. Oh, God, it is Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Doom scrolling. <laughs> and he says that wow. he's a servant of the power behind the nothing, but he never names what that power is. Uh, it's nothing. <laughs> Spoilers, More. we think it's capitalism, but uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah, kills, kills creativity, destroys everything in its wake, and leaves nothing for anyone. Yes, but the line of thinking that kind of gives you a hint that can lead to the nothing is the things that Bastion's father is telling him that we mentioned earlier. Why don't you go out and get a job, son? You're old enough, aren't you? I, I hear the coal mines are hiring. Dad, it's not the 1880s anymore. So when Atreyu asks Gamork why he's helping the nothing, he says, well, when people have given in to the nothing, they've lost all hope. And people who have no hope are easy to control. Oh. And those who have the control have the power. Mm-hmm. First you get the nothing, then you get the power, then I guess you still get nothing. But power is fueled by nothing. <laughs> At the same time. And money? Come on. It's it's all made up, right? Yeah. Yeah. You put the power in the nothing and you shake it all up. Yeah. So so the <laughs> qualities of nothing are apathy and emptiness and a lack of hope. And what is a lack of hope but pure despair? Mm-hmm. So I think... The byproduct of capitalism. That's what the nothing fuels. And think of what Gamork represents. It's hatred, anger, and fear, and that can lead to violence and despair. You're blowing my mind here, Chelsea. <laughs> and this is what Atreyu is trying... He's trying to save their land. Fantasia uh, is another character. I mean, that's the land where all of the realm of human imagination... Uh, fuels it. It's fueled by human imagination. Yeah, much like New York and like any indie movie, the setting is really kind of a character in this. Yeah. And uh, it's also described as the dreams and hopes of mankind. So there you have it. There's all of the, the setting and the characters for the backdrop. Well, this seems like a perfect time then to head into the Delve. This is The Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of The NeverEnding Story. Well, guys, there's a lot going on in this movie. 
I know we all have a ton of things we want to talk about in all the complex themes and everything. I got to say, like, I, I've watched this movie a bunch of times. Yeah. And, you know, the reason we decided to watch The NeverEnding Story this week is that this past week was Jack's birthday. Yeah. And this was like one of the movies that when he used to come over to our house and we were watching him, he would watch like five times a day. And like, I felt like I'd seen it a bunch of times. Like I, I thought I knew the movie and then watching it this time and like taking notes so much more jumped out at me that I'd never realized before. I know it goes so deep with all the themes and messages. I mean, you could get something out of this movie at any age. I mean, we're talking about the first movie, of course. The only one, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. We'll, we'll be talking about number two someday. Someday. Uh, I think I might be dead. <laughs> you can't make it because you'll be dead. So this yeah. movie and the second one are actually like the full cycle of the book. Right. And then the third movie is just complete bullshit that they pulled out of their ass for the movie. But this is the first. This is roughly the first half of the book, The NeverEnding Story, that we cover in this first movie. Ask me anything else about the book. I don't know shit because I've never read it. I just know that that's how they made the movie. Well, the book isn't safe. Why would you? That's a good point. <laughs> it I like tells my, you that it's not safe. <laughs> I like my media to be safe. No, that's that's great. This is actually a big thing that I want to talk about as we jump into the delve here and we start getting deep on the movie. One of the big concepts that kind of follow through from the beginning to the end of this film is kind of this death of the author right. slash when we consume media, we are shaping it to our own experiences, our own values and beliefs. And, you know, when fiction, you know, agrees with our perspectives, a lot of times I think it's easier for people to consume it and to take it into themselves. But even if a book or a movie or something has values that are not, necessarily your own i think a lot of times people will fit it into their worldview and i think that a great example of this is you can see it in fight club right a lot of people watched fight club and got completely unintended messages from it but like the way that bastion shapes the story to kind of fit his own perspective and everything you know reminds me of that thing that all of our brains do that is rap like that is fitting the media we consume into our own perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, all of our experiences are filtered through our consciousness, and the media we consume Not mine. is <laughs> the media we consume is part of that ex uh, within the realm of those experiences, and so it, as a result, activates our imagination. We understand our reality through our imagination. And so we are necessarily co-creating every experience we have. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this idea that people might be passive consumers of media. That's just impossible. It's as soon as it hits your brain, your eyes and your ears and your brain, you are reshaping it into your own perspective. That's right. The idea that you're not a part of it is just literally impossible. <laughs> it's true. I have some interesting examples that I took notes about from the movie that kind of highlight how it's creepily self-aware, but also highlights yes. this theme of the death of the author. 
Cool. Yes. Let's talk about them. And it's all the ways that you, like you said, Jamie, Bastian's presence as an audience, as the reader, shapes the story. Right. So, for example, his book bag has a Native American riding a horse and hunting a buffalo on it. Right. It's more of like the fantasy of the history of it. Right. But he's a child, so he's gravitating to that fantasy, and he's a lover of fantasy, like us. <sighs> he's also an avid reader. Like us. We know that he's read The Lord of the Rings. Um, Tarzan, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah, he the old man at the bookstore, the grumpy old man at the bookstore is like, oh, you're just a kid. You don't read. And Bastion's like, fuck you, old man. I read <laughs> like a motherfucker. Those are the actual lines of the movie. That's, right. That's exactly what he said. I'm, old man, I read like a motherfucker. <laughs> that, don't fuck with me, old man. <laughs> that book uh, seller was named Carl. Carl, thank you. Of course it was, because this is a German movie. Which is awesome. I don't think we would have gotten something... As good as this, uh, if it was in the U.S. Fun fact, this was the highest budget movie for its time that was not made in the U.S. or Russia. Wow. I'm so happy they did this because there's just so many layers here. <laughs> and I never knew that as a kid when I was watching it. I still enjoyed it, but now it's just like, I feel like I could watch it again with all these insights and just come to new insights. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about this big fucking nerd bastion. Okay. Oh, yeah. So that there was his book bag, and Atreyu is this kind of fantastical version of a Native American warrior. His people hunt the purple buffalo on the plains. Right. And he rides a, a white horse, just like on Bastion's book bag. Then there's another scene when his interactions actually make it into and shape the story. Yeah, like the scene when Morlai emerges from the swamp and the spectacle of the giant turtle affects Bastion so much that he screams. And in the book, the characters start looking around because they heard the disembodied cry. That's right. And then he says, that's impossible. They can't hear me. This is just a book. Yeah. Or is it? Spoilers, it's not just a book. <laughs> That's why it's, it's not It's dangerous. Safe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, there's another part where the book is actually affecting Bastion. He reads about a, a part when Atreyu and Artax are eating, and he says, this is a great idea, and he starts eating his lunch. That's right, because yeah. the media we consume shapes us in subtle ways, or might influence us to be hungry when we hear the description of a delicious peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> Little jerk takes one bite of his sandwich and says, no, not too much. There's still a long way to go. I'm like, oh, you just took one bite. Oh, <laughs> he, that can't sustain you. And he also had a Granny Smith apple, but more on that little psychopath later. Yeah. What he does to that apple is just disgusting. Oh, God. I don't even know if I can stomach talking about it. <laughs> we'll get into it's it. It's not safe. <laughs> what he does to that apple isn't safe. Oh, there's the part. Okay. This next part, this next example of the death of the author and the reader's imagination fueling anything that we consume or audience, you know, it requires a little bit of 
explanation because in this scene, the book is basically staring back at him. And this happens more than once. When you stare into a book, a book stares back into you. And the first time this happens is when Atreyu is on one of, is going through one of the trials and tests that he must go through during his quest. And there are many of those. I don't know if we want to break them down now or just kind of mention it and come back to it later. Because it's kind of a long tangent. I think we should mention it. Okay. So Atreyu is tested on his journey. It's kind of a something of a typical hero's journey coming of age story for Atreyu. He is a child of the people of the plains, but he is also their greatest warrior. And just like any quest out of myth or folklore, he goes through these trials and tests along the way. And many of these tests have to do with loss that he undergoes. And Such as losing Artax in the Swamp of Despair. The test is if he's willing to keep going past adversity, if he can deal with adversity. So yeah, the first one is when he loses one of his great friends, Artax. And that's very sad. I, I usually cry during that scene. Understandable. It's so It's a very emotional scene. I'm pretty sure I have seen many examples of other people who find that to be one of the saddest scenes in film history. Yeah. There's also a point where he has to face uh, the loss of his own morale and keep pushing past when the swamps of sadness are trying to overtake him. And he almost gives in. He's becoming so weak-willed that the Gamork is close behind him almost pouncing on him to kill him until he has a bit of luck on his side and Falcor the luck dragon swoops in and he's this bright light of hope in the sky a little dragon ex machina Atreus' internal sense of hope is rekindled and he reaches out for Falcor he's not ready to give up and he's saved at the last second oh then When he reaches the southern gate on his way to the Oracle, there's this first gate he must go through of the Golden Sphinxes. And And them titties. There his sense of self-worth and self-esteem are tested. And if you go through with no fear or self-doubt and you know your own worth, you will not be harmed. But if you have any moment of self-doubt, they will fucking kill you so here's the thing here's the thing about that scene atreyu like the only thing that separates him from the knight who goes through is that he leaps past the laser shots because the sphinxes try to blast him so he had self-doubt he just duck and roll he just like dodged and rolled so he didn't get hit. But th- they still tried to kill him. So doesn't that mean that he still had doubt? He had the will to defy. Well, see, he yes. got a little farther through than the knight did before they started opening their eyes to laser eye him down. Because, um... They're like, hold on, let's see how this plays out. Oh, no, gotta get him. He w- didn't experience any self-doubt until he saw what they did to that night. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of the time that I was swimming in a lake and a friend asked me if I knew how to swim and I forgot how to swim. <laughs> That's terrible. I'm glad you're still alive. Me too. <laughs> Despair almost got me that day. Yeah. Not today, swamps. <laughs> Not today, lake or river. I guess I was in a river. 
But it's like the swamps of the story, you see. It's like when somebody like it's like if you if you know jokes, but then somebody's like, "Well, tell me a joke." It's like, "Uh, wait, hold on, huh?" Like I can't just yep. do it on command. <laughs> or like say it's like somebody being like say something funny. You're not a dancing clown. No, I mean for their I'm, amusement. I might be that. You're a dancing fool. That's different. Right. I mean, but what of the fool if not a classic clown? True. I only know of one dancing clown. Pennywise. Or Penny, yeah, yes. Pennywise from it. Oh, that's God. his thing. It's a good oh. dance. And then the second gate on his way to the Southern Oracle is when he must look in a mirror and face his true self. So his sense of identity is what's being tested here. And, and what does he see in that mirror? No, we're circling back because that's the first time the book is staring back at Bastion. And it's actually super creepy, but also really cool at the same time. Yeah, but I mean, Atreyu sees Bastion in the exactly. mirror. Exactly. So. so Bastion's looking down reading about Atreyu looking through the mirror and seeing him. And when he uh, so, supposedly Atreyu's staring at him for a few moments before Bastion actually looks up. So he gets to the point where he says, I'm staring at, like Atreyu was staring at a young boy. Bastion looks up and sees Atreyu through the mirror. Boom. Mind yep. blown. It's this really hype moment. And that was the last major test that Atreyu went through. It's also when the story begins to shift and we see that Atreyu isn't the only one being tested, but Bastion is also being tested by the book. And as Atreyu is going through all of these trials and tribulations... In Bastion's world, in, in the conceit of the story, the real world, right? A storm is getting worse and worse outside. He's in the attic of his school reading this book instead of going to school. And I feel that vibe. I used to do that when I was in kindergarten, in a way. Not quite the same activity, but, you know, cutting classes. You used to go read the never-ending story in the attic of your school? That would be great. Save the world. Save the subconscious. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the world inside your mind. His perseverance is tested when the school and day ends and he can see everybody going home and they're turning off all the lights. That's a point he's tested. Do I go home or do I keep going with it? Do I fuel this story? He's fueling this story. But then he remembers what a goober his dad is and is like, nah, fuck it. I'm going to go deeper into the realm of imagination and fantasy. And then he's tested again. Good choice. He gets to meet a dragon. When he looks into Atreyu's face and they're both staring back at their true selves. So Atreyu is also embodying Bastion's character as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that has a lot to do with this idea that like we kind of imprint the characters that we like with our own qualities. And this is the character he literally carries around with him everywhere. In his book bag. Yeah. But yeah, there's uh, at this point in the book, Atreyu finally gets to the Southern Oracle, and here he is still kind of tested. He's tested with knowledge and the truth, and to see if he can handle the truth. He can't, or can he? <laughs> Maybe he can. And this is the point in the, in the world, in Bastion's world, when a lightning storm, a thunderstorm starts to take shape, and he's almost a scared away from uh, continuing to read, but then he finds a backbone and continues his resolve and keeps going. Yeah, you know, WWAD. What would a tray you do? Exactly. 
Mm-hmm. And then there's a final moment when the book stares back at, at Bastion, but that's kind of at the end of the movie. Maybe we have some other things we want to discuss before we get there. But we'll give you a little teaser that it's going to happen. Guys, there's a lot more I want to say about this movie. But before we do that, why don't we head to the bounty board? You awaken in a void. You look below you, above you, besides you, in front of you, and see nothing. There's nothing in front of you. There's nothing below you. There's nothing anywhere around you. But then, suddenly, like a faint glimmer of hope, words begin to appear. And they say, bounties? As the winter pall lifts and the seasons begin to change, don't you think it's time to enjoy a good book? And what better way to experience a story than with our favorite format here at Swords and Satire, audio recordings. That's why our show is sponsored in part by Audible, the world's leading provider of audiobooks, spoken word entertainment, and now podcasts, including ours, by the way. And if you head to audible.com slash swords right now, you'll be able to start your free 30-day trial of Audible, and you'll receive an audiobook of your choice that you get to keep even if you can't see your membership. Although I can't imagine why you'd want to, because Audible has thousands of titles and programs. And did I mention podcasts like Swords and Satire? After your 30-day trial, it's just $14.95 a month, and you'll get a monthly credit for an audiobook that will be yours forever. I love Audible because it helps keep me entertained when I'm sharpening swords, cleaning the moat, or fighting off those pesky invading hordes. I have a library of hundreds of titles from my favorite authors, from J.R.R. Tolkien and Naomi Novik to George Carlin and Jen Kirkman, and I'm always listening to some of the great titles from Audible's extensive collection. And you can start building your own library today. If you don't know what book to start off your collection with, you could grab The Fifth Season by Hugo Award-winning author N.K. Jemisin. It's a complex and gripping dystopian sci-fi epic filled with interesting characters, deep world-building, and cataclysmic events. It's also the first book in Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy, so once you finish book one, you'll be able to start your next month of Audible with the sequel, The Obelisk Gate. So one more time, head to audible.com swords to start your trial, get your first audiobook credit, your free wellness guide, and to browse the thousands of titles in Audible's extensive library of audiobooks, spoken word programs, and oh yeah, podcasts like this one. And now back to the episode. So while all of this is going on, the world is being torn apart by the nothing until very few bits of Fantasia are left. And um, when Atreyu tells Falcor what they have to do, that they have to find a human child to save Fantasia, they try to search for the boundaries of Fantasia to try to find a human child. Where they could anyone ever find a human child? That's like a mythical, a mythical thing, right? <laughs> In their world, it is. 
And there, the nothing is kind of like a, a storm raging through, just like the storm outside of Bastion's windows. And they basically have a, a air accident <laughs> and they get thrown apart. That's when Atreyu falls into the sea of possibilities. Yeah. And he comes across these ruins where he sees frescoes of his adventures. And he, that's when he's looking back at his own story. There are so many levels. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He sees the pictures of the things that he's done already painted on these walls and of something that's about to come. And that is the Gamork. Because he sees the picture of the Gamork and then he turns around and the Gamork is right there. Jack really liked that scene. Oh, yeah. The Gamork is great. I, I just love that in that moment, the Gamork even has given in to despair because he's like, oh, I was tasked to find the guy trying to stop the nothing, but, you know, I could never find him. He's telling it to Atreyu, the guy who was <laughs> hunting. Atreyu's like, hey, it was me. And Gamork's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why'd you tell me that? Right? <laughs> Atreyu's like, if I'm gonna die, I wanna die fighting. And that's so Atreyu. He represents that perseverance, like we, like we were saying earlier on, that courage, right? Yeah. The drive. And so Gamork is like, all right, I think I'll try and kill you. And Atreyu's like, sounds good. I got nothing else going on. <laughs> Gamork kind of goes down like a chump, though. He dives onto Atreyu and then just kind of like jumps onto his knife. Well, he was dying. He was using up all of his energy to fuel the nothing. Yeah. And this is when they have that interchange. And this is when Gamork explains everything about Fantasia. He tells Atreyu that Fantasia has no borders. He can't actually escape because it's fueled by the dreams and hopes of mankind which are limitless but they don't have access to them if if you give in to despair and lose your hope well boy i really wish that those limitless uh creative energies could be used to make some movies that aren't just remakes <laughs> or to create some good sequels got them i think it's great that after that scene with the gamork Atreyu is reunited with Falcor, but it's a little too late. And when I say a little too late, I mean, it's pretty fucking late. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're just flying through the void of space and there's little asteroids of land floating around them. Because the nothing has destroyed the world for the most part. Now it's just like sweeping up, picking off the crumbs, right? And Atreyu's like, oh, we, I think we fucked up, Falcor. We failed, think, dude. <laughs> oh, man. I think we weren't able to beat the unstoppable emptiness, right? <laughs> Game <laughs> over, dragon. Game over. <laughs> well, obviously, the solution was to put something in the nothing. No, that just makes bigger nothing. Uh-oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, well, anyway, they're flying through the void, but with a little bit of luck, they find the ivory tower, right? Where the Empress lives, yeah. Yes! The heart of Fantasia. And of course, she would still be around because Fantasia's not completely gone yet. Atreyu and Falcor are still there, and if they exist, the Empress might, must, right? Because you so, can't kill the spark of creative inspiration. Yeah. Exactly. 
And I find this final scene sort of fascinating in a couple ways. We had already established in that mirror scene that Sebastian and Atreyu are sort of binary souls, right? Yes. And Falcor and Atreyu come to the Empress and she's like, Oh, hey, Atreyu, how's your quest going? He's like, well, that's a bit of a strange question. Uh, I couldn't do it. We failed. I couldn't find a human boy. I couldn't go beyond the boundaries of Fantasia. Human child, excuse me. Yeah. Yes, and she's like, what are you talking about, dummy? You, you had one with you the whole time. Atreyu's <laughs> like... Uh, what the fuck meanwhile bastion's like in our world being like they can't be talking about me right yes they're talking about you kid and when he says that her her tower rumbles like there's an earthquake yes yeah his his doubt is hurting their world yes it's true i didn't think about that it's totally true I find this scene fascinating because even though Atreyu and Sebastian are binary souls, as I have established, Atreyu stops being relevant in this final scene. It's true. Because the second she turns her attention to Bastion, Atreyu is gone. Well, she also says to Atreyu, basically speaking to Bastion through Atreyu, right? Yeah. Which is what you're describing. She says, he's been watching you as you've gone through all of your trials on your quest. And there were others watching Bastion as he oh. read about you. Oh. <laughs> Yo, that's creepy. So the movie is even self-aware. The book is self-aware of the movie, which is self a self-aware of its own self, too. And there's <laughs> someone listening to us talking about them. Us being watching them, someone's listening to this. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> it's true. It, yes. it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. Moonchild! Hey, yeah. we're not there yet. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, she starts talking, like you said, Jack, we'll go back to that. She starts talking directly to him and looking at the camera. Because Atreyu is a catalyst for Sebastian to interact with this world of fantasy, right? He's the yeah. self-insert. So right. She's like, let's cut the shit, kid. (laughs) I'm not talking to fucking Atreyu. (laughs) Okay. You. As soon as she starts talking to Bastion, Atreyu falls down dead. (laughs) Wait, what? And and it's actually when, right when Bastion has this last test that he goes through and he says, it's not me. It's just a story. And as soon as he says that, and he disbelieves in the world, Atreyu fucking falls down dead. Yo. And that's when she looks at him and starts pleading with him, like you're saying, Jack. Yeah. It's a pretty epic moment. And yeah, it's it's brutal. She And it's pretty well known, if you've heard of this movie, to save the world, Sebastian needs to give the Empress a name. Yes. He needs to add to the core of this world, right? He needs to re-envision the heart of Fantasia. Yeah, and they specifically say he needs to give her a new name. Yes, it's like the youth keeping the fantasy alive. Exactly. Reflavoring it. Yeah. Well, so Bastion makes an interesting choice in naming the Empress because it seems like he's naming her after his mother, 
who has either passed or possibly just has left. She passed. Okay. So I, I'm getting the kind of impression, or I've gotten the impression that his mother was maybe a bit of a free spirit, maybe hippie type to his father's stern practicality. So the name he names the Empress either directly from like his mom's hippie name, whatever, is yeah. Moonchild. And it's important that he actually physically calls out her name. It's his final test to prove that he believes in this realm of imagination. He has to prove it. He has to contribute to the creative energies of the universe. Exactly. Yeah, so this is a real fucking trick, all right? Uh, he, he climbs up, looking out the window, so he's on a bunch of wobbly boxes. He's looking out the window. He swings it open, the storm, the lightning, the leaves, <laughs> they're blowing in. He goes, moan child, right? He screams at the <laughs> yeah. top of his lungs. Into the storm. <laughs> yeah. Into the storm. And then he's in a quiet place of pure darkness, except for a single light, like a candlelight, in the palm of a small hand. It's the Empress standing right in front of Sebastian, right? Yeah, it's Manifested a in front of him. Yes. <laughs> Fantasy and reality staring face to face. They've merged. That's not supposed to happen. What the <laughs> heck? And she's like, you did it, Sebastian. You did it. But we only were able to save a single grain of sand. And it's this little glowing sand bead right here. He's like, oh, fuck. We're too late. It's this, the faintest grain of hope and creativity. But it's enough. Yes, he's like, oh, no. I took too long. I'm real. I'm sorry. And she's like, no, Sebastian. This is enough. Like Chelsea just said. This can rebuild the whole thing. And he's like, well, I, I, like, how? And she's like, however you want. <laughs> You're the person who makes it. You now, are now the architect of our world. Yes. You are now the constructor of our subconscious, of the <laughs> hopes and dreams of all humanity. You are God. That's right. And you so are like, creative energy. Defined. Yeah, yeah. She's like, how are you going to do it? What are you going to start with? He's like, I'm going to kill my bullets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He says, uh, before that, he says... Uh, well, how many wishes do I get? Oh, yeah, that's right. You never ask how many wishes you get. Yeah. She says, as many as you want. With a little smirk. Yeah, because <laughs> she knows that's hype. Yeah. <laughs> so what does he decide to do? He gets Falcor to come and help him chase down the bullies that were bullying him in the beginning, proving that no matter how good you might feel, petty spite always wins the day. <laughs> yeah. It's so great. The way we kind of get to see it at the end, because the entire film, like we mentioned, it's reflecting the, like the death of the author. Yeah. You're putting yourself in the story. You're using experiences from your own life as reference to understand what's happening in the book. And when he becomes God and gets to rewrite reality, he's flying around on Falcor's back, right? He sees a Treyu riding on Artex on the plains, right? Of our world. He's flying around. He sees a Treyu on the plains. He sees 
the night hub, the snail racer, the rock biter, they're all hanging out. Yeah. Yeah, it's just great to see like he he's seeing the world and seeing Fantasia at the same time. Yeah. Which is so great. It's kind of merch for him since he's the architect. That's right. Yes. He can go seamlessly between the worlds. Yes. Riding on the back of a motherfucking dragon. That's the best way. To, <laughs> honestly, that's the best way to change the world is to have a dragon. With luck. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. And Falcor is... A little bit of luck, a little bit of hard work, and a lot of dragon. <laughs> I'm talking a lot of dragon. <laughs> Falcor is totally confident about it, too. He's like... Having a luck dragon on your side is the only way to go on a quest. <laughs> oh, and fucking Alan Oppenheimer, man, plays Falcor, plays the Rockbiter, he's the voice of the Gamork, and fucking Skeletor. I mean, what a legend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a guy. What a guy. He says such iconic lines as, they look like big, strong hands, don't they? And, um... And uh, I'm Gamork. <laughs> <laughs> I represent evil and darkness and shit. And lines iconic, like Falcor's line, I love children. <laughs> For breakfast? <laughs> Never. So since we're on the subject of Alan Oppenheimer lines, I want to just talk about one more thing before we move on. And we've already touched on it. And this uh, it's this idea that he says as the Gamork, that people who are afraid are easy to control. Right. And that's something I really want to dig into because well, I feel like it ties back nicely to this overarching theme that we've kind of talked about throughout movies and our, the stories we've discussed over this entire podcast. Well, you could definitely describe it as fear, but he specifically says people who have no hope are easy to control. Right, exactly. But you could totally interpret it as fear, too. So this comes back to a little thing that I like to call class struggle. Oh, yeah. Because, I remember that. Hold on. We need that class struggle theme music, then. I didn't know we had class struggle theme music. <laughs> I mean, no, it makes sense on our podcast. Just imagine that outside our podcast. <laughs> the like, class struggle theme song. This calls for the class struggle theme song. The what? <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, I don't have to tell any of our listeners that this idea about taking away people's hope as a means of controlling them is something that we have seen throughout history. Throughout for time immemorial, right? Mm -hmm. It's why the Romans would decimate a population and, uh, you know, kill 10% of the populace to just show, like, hey, look at what we can do. We have um, ultimate control over you. Yeah. We control your lives. Mm. You have no hope of escaping the conditions that we're going to set out for you. Oh, I was just going to ask. Well, I was just going to clarify that decimate means to. Uh, completely wipe out, right? <laughs> no, fun fact. It means to 
destroy 10% of. Except oh. for with the way language works, it changes over time and takes on new meanings because it's a living entity. That may be true, but it was a thing that the Romans did sure. to control a population yes. through fear and giving them the idea that there was no hope for them to not be under Roman occupation. And I just want to draw another correlation to your example. You were saying they have no hope of living outside of the Roman control once they've been taken over, and that's the point. And maybe you were leading up to this, and I hope I'm not stealing it from you. I hope not. <laughs> but the Gamork also tells Atreyu, he actually lies to him, hidden within a piece of truth. A grain of truth. Oh. That there are no boundaries Whoa. to Fantasia, so it's impossible for him to complete his task of finding a human child because he can never go beyond the realm of Fantasia. Right. Which is that, fucking bullshit. That level of control. The lie, that's true, but the lie is the assumption because Atreyu has actually already completed his quest. Right. He is bringing Bastion exactly where Bastion needs to be. And the lie that the Romans told <laughs> other peoples is that they never have anything outside of the control of the Romans. But you know what they don't, they can't control? Your ability to fucking fight back. And your imagination, your own consciousness. I thought you were going to reference earlier, like, yeah. And in fact, there's that scene where the Gamork starts to explain the military tactics of the Romans to Atreyu. <laughs> You see, Caesar was actually an ingenious military warlord. <laughs> well, who? Well, you see. <laughs> well, there is some kind of interesting connection to Gamork and Roman or possibly Greek culture because his home is in that Minoan ruins. or Greek yeah. ruins. Yeah. Yeah, oh, very yeah, Greco-Roman right. style ruins. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's related to Nero, since, you know, they all came from a wolf. Good point. A wolf. Yeah. yeah. But part of this class struggle discussion has to involve the power behind the nothing. That's right. And what is the power behind the nothing? Why, nothing less than our entire capitalist system. Exactly. Did I blow your mind, listener? Thanks, Reagan. <laughs> so you might know about capitalism you might be familiar with it some of us even live with it uh can't live with it uh would like to live without it am i right am i right listeners hey. am i right <laughs> listeners well uh let's just say in a capitalist society they really encourage working hard especially in this post-industrial world we live in production and uh, remaining diligent are very sought-after traits these days. And, you know, with most of us working around or in the house of minimum wage, it's a hustle to get by. Am I right? You go day in, day out, 40 hours a week, sometimes more, just to get by. Not to thrive, just to survive. And, you know, the thing is, with all that in mind, it's hard to have hope in a system designed to keep you down, to keep you in a specific economic status. The only escape we have is hope, perseverance, and, you know, imagination is a very important thing. I was going to say death. <laughs> uh, you know, 
that's 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 the final retirement right there. Or death <laughs> of the system. How about that? Let's turn yeah, this speaking. on its head a little bit. Yeah, it's but true. um, it's the production and the constant hard work, not to benefit yourself. Convenient though that that becomes an ideology or a positive trait for an individual living within a capitalist system, but that's just meant to keep you in control and keep you working for the elite few who actually benefit from the labor of your of all your toils and trials and tribulations mm, definitely definitely and you know with all of this waking up and doing the same thing day in day out it's easy to become jaded your reality can become uh you know monotonous treacherous boring thing right Empty. imagination it can it can. It shouldn't, though. Yeah. Because you always got your imagination. And imagination and wonder and whimsy, you know, they keep you They keep you going. They keep it worth doing. Yeah, it's funny if you consider the fact that Bastion goes to school, but cuts school so that he can go read. So clearly, whatever they're teaching him, he's not against learning or knowledge. He fucking loves it. Yeah. Like, clearly... Give this kid some books. Like, I, I'm sure he's fine with whatever subjects. They're just not engaging him on an intellectual level. And it's sad because that happens to so many people who feel like, oh, well, school's not for me. So I'm going to go cut school to read. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. Shouldn't yeah. you be able to read as part of your <laughs> curriculum? What are, what are these teachers teaching this poor kid? There's a class called English. That people in America have to take. What the fuck is it if not reading? <laughs> <laughs> so I just think it's funny that Bastion is not a typical kid cutting school to go, let's say, take your friend's car out for a ride and have it come flying out of your friend's window. <laughs> you know, the reason or what we all do when we cut school. Right. He's cutting school to educate himself. Yeah. Yeah, expand the mind. Anyway, I went uh I went to school system in California. I went to school system. <laughs> uh yeah. And uh, yeah, I I always felt like it was meant to teach us diligence, which is, you know, just doing what you're told and doing it efficiently than it was to actually help us learn something. Well, also to conform to certain ways of thinking and behaving. Exactly. And yeah, I think that's definitely the nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I went to what was basically public-private school or private-public school. We we learned a little bit of free thinking, but not until high school. Well, also what you're really learning is to be an efficient worker once you get out of high school or college and enter the workforce. You're, that's you're what just going to be like a cog. You're cheap. And easy to replace when you break. That is what our school system is designed for. So <laughs> the fact that we're not very smart as, Speak for yourself. as a country, and it's hard to be innovative when you stifle people's creativity. I'll just put it that way. We're slipping, is what you're saying. Yeah. It's true. I'm surprised we can innovate anything, really, in our in our system. I, I'm really surprised that we've made it this far. 
in, in a, okay, I'm just gonna call America out right now. We treat the common person like trash, dude. How is the nothing not uh, like this movie was inevitable in, in our post-industrial world? Because this the the reason we're talking about this, it wouldn't we wouldn't even be talking about it if people did not feel a jaded monotony in our system, a disregarded bleakness. Thank yeah. God everyone got the message when this movie released in 1984 and changed course. And now we live in this awesome creative utopia where we're all free and happy and, you know, not under the whim of billionaires controlling our every move. Yes. Yes, definitely. We live in a post never ending story world. That's the most common phrase I hear in my day to day. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> anyway, that's class. <laughs> well, guys, I think that we've kind of covered what we would normally cover in Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood since we've kind of talked a lot about the Gamork and the Nothing. And I mean, honestly, the antagonist of this movie is kind of more of a concept than anything. So, yeah. so why don't we just head into the smithy? Welcome to the smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from one to ten swords? Sure. This movie is just full of such good scenes to pin down. A specific one that I find exceptionally epic is quite difficult seeing as I love this movie. I've always, I've watched it probably multiple times every year. And, uh, you know, there's just so many memorable scenes. I'm going to have to pick one that I always come back to in my mind. It's a scene that we've mentioned after Sebastian has gotten the grain of imagination that is the last infinite wish seed of Fantasia. And he's riding on Falcor's back, right? Yeah. The bullies, his three bullies are in the street, you know, just hanging out, doing their thing. And they look up in the sky and they're shaking hands go what the fuck uh, you know not in those exact words but then it cuts that's to the sebastian. spirit of it yeah it cuts to sebastian flying on falcor and he just goes yeah and then it's playing never-ending story one of their themes it's like right this fun triumphant music as falcor's just like here we go <laughs> just starts screaming as he's careening at these kids who are shitting their pants and running down the street. And they're like pushing past people because they're about to be murdered by a dragon and the kid they threw in the dumpster. And then they jump in the dumpster and Falcor's like, oh, oh, sweet revenge. It's so delicious, Sebastian. <laughs> Anyway, that's kind of hyperbole. A year but. later, Falcor had to go to uh, rehab. <laughs> yes. The bloodlust was so strong. He became addicted. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, I think that scene's really epic when Sebastian fucking gives his, uh, gives his bullies 
PTSD. Very cool. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Tried to kill them. What would Falcor have done if he caught them? We can only imagine. Lucky for them, <laughs> they got away. Hey, that's part of it. Something yeah. makes you think. Makes you think. Uh, I'm going to have to give this movie... Oh, oh man. Uh, it's 10 out of 10 something. <laughs> what are we rating it out of? Swords. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so 10 out of 10 swords. <laughs> uh, to me, everything is so intentional. Every Every line of dialogue is so, like meaningful important memorable uh, all the sets are really nice all the costumes are great expensive and great and uh just what a wonderful setting what a wonderful message uh i've watched it too many times and have too much affection for it to see any flaw so 10 out of 10 biased swords that's fine this is a completely subjective rating system yeah yes that was that was a great rating. <laughs> All right, Chelsea, how about your epic moment or feature and then your rating from one to ten swords? Oh, I gotta say, there are so many good moments, like Jack said, it's hard to pick one, but one that stands out to me is when the Empress is beseeching Bastion at the end, and she's talking directly to him and directly to us at the same time. And it's like she's talking to us at the same time she's talking to him. Yes, yes. And she's pleading and cr almost, and she's tearing up and crying. And she's pleading with Bastion to give her a new name because her tower is falling down around her as Bastion is resisting and saying he has to keep his feet on the ground and repeating what his father has told to him. And he's in danger of losing his link to his creative and imaginal forces and she finally asks him why don't you do what you dream bastion and i felt like she was fucking oh, yes. talking to me she cut me to the quick yeah. i was like yeah why don't i do what i dream i will <laughs> <laughs> you you dream about yelling moonchild out a window exactly you can no. do that any day you want <laughs> Bastion finally he says okay I will I will do what I dream and that's when he runs over to the window like Jack said he throws it open and screams moonchild into the storm the streets are alive with the sound of moonchild <laughs> yes but it's not only is he saying I believe in this story and I am going to keep my connection to the realm of fantasy and imagination alive. He's keeping his connection to his mother alive through Aww. this. And she, I would like to imagine that she fueled all of these interests and this connection within him. Oh, absolutely. And that's why he thinks of her when he thinks of giving the Empress a new name. And I, that's just such an incredibly powerful scene. And I felt like I felt it very deeply as a very personal message for me, too, when I was watching it. Yes. And I did not expect it. But you know what? It, it was it's real, man. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to give this movie a 10 out of 10 as well. It's a masterpiece. What? It's a fantasy masterpiece. It's the backbone 
of my love for fantasy. I I started watching this from a very young age. I think this movie, if anybody ever wonders that I meet, like, why do you love fantasy so much? What fuels your creativity? I want to send them to this movie. Send them to this podcast. <laughs> yes. But this is also just reinvigorating, I feel, for our podcast, why fantasy is so important. We all need this creative outlet, this connection to our imagination, and fantasy is one of our ways of doing that. And it has its ties back to folklore and myth. And these are our important stories that we use to impart messages, lessons, or just share our experiences with one another. And that's the core of what we find in our lives as meaningful is our stories. And that's why we do this. Well said. So 10 out of 10 swords from me. How about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment or feature and your rating out of 1 to 10 swords? Yes, tell us, Jamie. Well, I want to say that my epic moment is when, much like Beowulf, Atreyu must give up his weapons before he sets out on his quest. Yes. Which I thought was a really interesting moment in the film where he is dispossessing himself of his tools of violence because that's not what he will need to be on this journey. This is not a quest of violence. This is a quest of act of adventure, a right. whole different concept. It could be a peaceful journey. It almost is completely a peaceful journey in terms of attrition and battle. Right. I want to say that's my epic moment, but we buried the lead earlier and we talked about the horrendous act that Bastion commits in the movie, and we never That's pointed right. out what it was. So I have to say that my epic moment <laughs> yes, is when no. Bastion is reading the book and having the last remnants of his lunch, and he is finishing the Granny Smith apple that Jack pointed <laughs> out that he is eating throughout the movie, and he gets to the core of the oh, apple no. and then pops the fucking core in his mouth and eats it. <laughs> he oh. eats the whole goddamn apple and I was shaken to my core. I've never seen anybody do something so disgusting in my life. <laughs> I, I punched a hole right through my computer screen. <laughs> it is haunting to watch a child eat an apple core. <laughs> I screamed I my voice away and I shit my pants. I think it <laughs> broke me. It is the only, I don't even know, I, I want to say it's the only flaw in an otherwise perfect movie, but <laughs> maybe it's not a flaw. This could be the most intentional filmmaking. that I could be missing some important idea about how the core of the apple is like the core of our creative <laughs> self like the 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 fruit of the knowledge of good and evil from the garden of eden and by eating this apple bastion is filling himself with knowledge and i just i have to assume it's that because otherwise it just breaks me the seeds of knowledge and creativity that he uses later as his wishes when he's oh, holding yes. that grain of sand. There we I'm go. I'm just imagining when the director tells the Sebastian actor, all right, then you eat the apple core and the actor just vomits on the ground <laughs> after hearing that direction. 
<laughs> he does what? <laughs> so that's it. I mean, that's the moment, right? Yeah. But I'm going to have to say that this movie gets nine out of ten. No, just kidding. Oh, of course. God. Of course. This is a a 30-point movie, right? Ten and ten from you guys. Ten from me. All right. Absolutely. I remember, like I said, watching this movie repeatedly with Jack. And I wasn't, like, watching it every time, of course. I was playing video games. But, you know, it was on it. the TV while I was playing video games. I watched it for my birthday, uh, I think, last year. Not this year, but, we, you know, we got together with some of our friends. We watched two of my favorite fantasy movies, one of which will be coming up in an upcoming episode. So maybe I won't spoil what that is. But And this one. Um, I was really excited to watch it this week with you guys. And after we watched it and after I finally sat down with it and took notes and absorbed so much more of it, it just made me realize all the things Chelsea has said about how it is this creative force, how it's inspirational, how it blends metaphors and themes in these wonderful, interesting ways. The shots are gorgeous like jack said the sets and the scenes and the whole world they create is so enheartening it's a perfect 10 for me too and you know i the mean music is amazing too we oh, didn't even talk about that the, i know oh we didn't even have God. time we're already running long like this is the music yeah. outstanding there's a heavy metal cover of the song by the band ermin soul there's a stradivarius song about this fucking movie yeah I mean, this is like the most metal movie and also just the baddest ass fantasy movie. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'd say it's one of our foundational films that fueled our love for fantasy. Absolutely. And I assume that that means that the second movie is also equally brilliant and we're going to have a fun time talking about that too, right? Oh, God, I hope so. Sorry, oh, I blacked out for a sec there. <laughs> I didn't hear what you said. But anyway, I'm sure it won't be important. <laughs> yeah, well, on that note, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us for, I'd say, this energetic episode of the show. If you like what we do here, maybe consider dropping us a review. And if you want to know more about the show and the movies we watch, you can follow us on social media at Swords and Satire on Instagram and Twitter or join the Swords and Satire Facebook group for updates, memes, and movie announcements. And if you have a couple of coins to rub together, maybe you could rub those coins in our direction digitally. That's how finance works, right? <laughs> That's how I understand it. <laughs> you can head over to patreon.com slash swords and satire and join our patron community. You get tons of bonus content. There's several different tiers and we cater our content to each tier and you'd be able to vote in our monthly polls about the movies we watch so that's pretty cool it's true and if you don't have two coins to ominously rub in our direction <laughs> and you find yourself enjoying some tasty limestone while holding your friends in your big strong hands with just a little bit of quartz running through it oh mm. Mmm, marbling Yeah. Marbling it. Get it? Get yeah. it? Well, anyway, if you're chilling with your friends, why not tell them about Swords and Satire, your favorite, your favorite podcast. And, you know, 
tell them to listen, listen with them. Even watch the movies we discuss and see what you think. And tell us your thoughts on social media. It's a fun way to interact with your friends. There you go. And until next time, Hail Crom! It's nothing. <laughs>